word in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you're a God who, as the scriptures say to us, that you spread your ear out to us. And it's a wide ear that listens to all our trials and our difficulties and struggles. We give you praise for that, Lord. And I want to thank you, Lord, for being here present with us today. We pray for our nation and the many trials and tribulations it's gone through. Some of it is domestic, Lord, that we know a lot of things are changing, and also on the international level, and things are pretty wild out there also. And we think of the Ukraine and for those people that are going through that and for other areas of the country. And Lord, we ask you that your hand will be upon that whole situation and that, Lord, resolve will come out of it, but also to be with our president and the Congress and the legislative branches of government that they can keep each other in check. And also, too, like the early church fathers wanted us to have a a nation under God. And we pray about that right now. We're concerned about that, and we pray that they will, our leaders will get that insight and direct things towards your glory, God. And today, Heavenly Father, too, we pray for all those who protect us, both on foreign soil and here on our streets every day. We are very concerned about the high murder rate in Wichita and theft and armed robbery, Lord, and we're concerned for the citizens, Lord, and we just pray for a change of heart. We pray for the church, Lord, for a revival to come and that people's lives will be changed and things will go to your glory and not to the world's way. We pray especially for those that we have that are shut in. We think of Bill Bannister and we think of uh, Evelyn and we think of uh, Lucille and Karen and Kay and Joyce, all these who are bound by their homes that cannot get out. I pray also for those who battle with addiction. Uh, We know some people that we work with and try to help for Ryan, for Jordan, for David, for Rick, for Ricky, for Eric, and for Mitch. All these who are battling and under the uh, oppression of the demon of drug addiction. And for families that we know that have lost loved ones to fentanyl and other drugs and overdose. We pray also too, Lord, for those that we know that are struggling with health. We pray for Nick. Uh, next month as he goes to get some surgery. I pray also, too, for uh, Daniel Gum and Samantha, uh, Mama, as they are battling their cancer. I pray for healing for them. I pray for Omar, too, for healing for his body. I pray for John. I think of Tom, for Sarah, for Howard. Pray also, too, for families that are lost loved ones, Lord, and that are grieving right now, especially I lift up the family yesterday, the Guile family, as they put mom to rest. We're thankful for her testimony. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said on so grateful that we have light this week and that we don't have to do the darkness. We're sorry that we didn't get to uh, put our, our uh, service on YouTube last week because uh, we were without power, but it's good to have you again this morning. And I begin with a word from a guy by the name of Max Lucado, who's a Christian author. And when he was growing up as a young man, 
he was on a service team with his youth group, and they would go out and bring communion to people that were shut in. And they came upon this fellow that was in the hospital, and him and his other 16-year-old buddy went in to talk to the guy, but the guy was dead to sleep. And they tried every which way to wake this guy up, and he would not wake up. And finally, they wanted, they got discouraged, but they wanted to be able to give him communion, and they didn't know how to do it. And finally, his buddy says, hey, let's just drop it in his mouth. <laughs> so they took the little wafer and dropped it in, and then they poured a little juice. He still didn't wake up. A lot of people are not aware of what goes on when we do communion. And today, the Apostle Paul is dealing with worship etiquette. He started last week when we were talking about the proper etiquette in a servant, and especially in Corinth where there was prostitution, and women wore hats on their heads to show submission to their husband, but also that they were not promiscuous. And in that society, women wore hats and long hair to show that they were not promiscuous. Because there was a thousand prostitutes that came from Aphrodite's temple every night to entice the men of that city, but also the sailors and the soldiers that would be passing through. And so Paul spoke about that, and especially in worship, because women were taking their hats off now, and the men were wearing hats, and they were getting it all confused, and he wanted them to proper worship God, because men are from the, from the Lord, and so they're not to wear a hat, and women who are, come from man wear a hat and to show submission in that day and age. Well, now the Apostle Paul wants to speak of us about communion. And to the people, especially of Corinth, because they weren't getting it right. If you remember, Corinth was that little isthmus that sailors would come upon and they would move their uh, goods across the three-mile hike rather than go 200 miles around the bottom of Greece. And that they would use it to make speed up their process of getting their goods to their uh, people that they were taking them to. And what we knew, though, that Paul started this church, and he started it, but they began to have problems right away. For a year and a half, he was there, and then finally that, that he had to leave. And what happened, though, that there were problems that Cleos sent him a letter. And he wrote a first letter um, getting, down, getting on the people that were causing the problems and divisions. But then he wrote this second letter to follow that up. And that second letter is what we know as 1 Corinthians, and he speaks to them about the divisions, how they were praying favorites in the Christian world who was their celebrity speaker that they wanted to hear. And they also had issues with <clears throat> sexuality, of course, because it was a highly sexual community that they were living in, and they wanted to know what was right and what was wrong. Some of them were even on their way home from Bible study, stopping and visiting with a prostitute, or they were stopping and getting drunk. And Paul said, this is never to be. And he talked about the institution of marriage. Then he also talked about those gray areas that we deal with. You know, when God says, doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, but how do you deal with it? And one of the things he says, there's a lot of things we as Christians can do, but we don't do because if we do them, they can bring us under slavery. And so we don't do them. My dad did not drink because he was fearful that he and I don't drink either because I was fearful of that gene in my family background. Both sides had alcoholism. So I've resisted drinking my whole life. And the reason I've done it is because of that and, and, and uh, because I know it can make me a slave. Paul also talked about things that we can do. But if they offend our brother and sister, we don't do them. 
because we think highly of them and we don't want to bring them down. So even though we can do them, if somebody else struggles, we don't do it. I remember <clears throat> we had a gal on our uh, discipleship team back in the East Coast, and she um, used to go to discos before she came to Christ, and she would knew how to pick up guys that were really easy for her, and she couldn't go into the disco, so we didn't assign her jobs to go into bars or discos because that's where she used to do her picking up guys all the time to feel comfort and feel peace in her heart when she never got it anyway out of that. And so here the Apostle Paul now is speaking to us, though, a very serious matter, and that is the Lord's Supper. And it's sometimes people can take it, and we can take it, very nonchalantly. I've heard people say, yeah, when are we going to do the crackers and the juice? And that's being pretty flippant about something that was very important to God, as we will see to Paul today as he speaks to us. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know, I wish I had praise to give you in this area, but he says, I don't. You got a lot of problems here, and you need to clean it up. You got to get the right mindset for when you're having communion. And so Paul begins, and he starts out with basically saying to him, are you guys kidding me? This is actually going on in your services? Look what he says. But in giving the instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear of divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each other takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Is this not, I will not praise you. Now the Apostle Paul is talking about Early in the church in Acts chapter 2, we saw how the church was very close. They had each other. That's all they had except the Lord. And they would get together all the time, and they would have these things called love feasts. And they would eat together. And after the love feast, then they would have the Lord's Supper. And they would finish it off with the Lord's Supper. But in doing so, there were things that were going on in Corinth that were not right. And what happened was it became to be a selfishness. That there were people who were eating very well, and then there was those who had no food at all and went away hungry from these supposed love feasts. And Paul confronts them right away. And you see, they didn't have sanctuaries like we have today. They went to people's houses. Aquila and Priscilla, they had a house, they were wealthy, but their house was above their work. And it was not big enough for the congregation. But there were other wealthy people. And back in the 1980s, when they did excavation about some of the hoses, houses, especially those outside of Corinth of the wealthy, they found that there was homes that were what they called as trilinium. And that is, they were three stages of the house. They had an area where the family sat around the table. Oftentimes it was a big table, maybe 12 seats. Then there was an area that held about 50 people. And then there was an area uh, that was held over 100. 
and that the church would meet in these homes. But the tragedy of it was, is that the people who came to the love feast and ate there and had communion at the end were hurting those who were the outsiders, those who were sitting out in the, the end part. And they were not getting anything, if not maybe a leftover or two, but they were not getting any food. And some of them were poor. And some of them had no food at all. And what Paul was saying, sadly, is that, you know, the people that came, that sat around that table were taken care of immensely. The people in the middle were getting okay, but the people out here were just not getting much of anything. And he says to them, what kind of love is this? Were there even people who go away hungry and that don't have a thing to eat or wind up during the communion service, eat a lot of bread to fill their stomachs and even get drunk because they didn't have enough. Now, Bithynia, who was the governor of the time, wrote this to Pliny. He said, because of your arrogance of some people, there was not enough food for even us. And you didn't take care of us. In fact, you were stingy. And you took care of the people who were really high. But you didn't care for anybody else. This was what going on for the Christians in the first century as they met together to worship in homes. There was a discrimination that was so wrong. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. And what a wonderful thing that Paul confronts them with. With indignation. He said, how could you even say this? And allow this to take place? I remember as a child. We used to have Sunday school picnics. And those Sunday school picnics were great. One of the favorite things that I loved to see. The competition of the teenagers. When I was little. As they did the egg toss contest. You know that one. You take the egg and your partner's over there and you flip it. You flip it back. And you keep on backing up. And you're flipping. And usually somebody flips it a little bit harder. And when they catch it, it breaks in their hands and it goes all over. Well, this woman at her Sunday school picnic was leading this program. And they were doing that. And everybody was having a great time. But she noticed two little children off to the side. And as they were doing their brackets, one of the little boy came up to her and says, Ma'am, if you have any eggs left over, can we have them? Because we don't have any eggs in our home. And immediately her heart was struck. Here she was being very exa extravagant with this, these eggs and the food. And these little kids didn't even have eggs in their refrigerator. And so all of a sudden, she took the bracket and shrunk it. And the game was over. And she had two cartons of eggs that she gave them to take home. Because she realized those two little children didn't have food at home. And then she organized people to bring them food. You see, this is what was going on in Paul's day. The poor who had come to Christ were not getting much of anything. No wonder Paul says why you have divisions. Why there's a separation. The Bible tells us that as we come to the communion table, 
there should be no differences. We should all be equal as we stand before Almighty God and receive by His grace His mercy to us. And that no matter where we come from, where we've been, that we're all one in Jesus Christ. I watched this when I was growing up in the inner city church that I grew up in. And I saw my mom and dad. In fact, it, it, it picked, pricked my heart yesterday uh, to telling this story because the Phillies were playing um, in this World Series against the Astros. And in that day, there was a little kid by the name of Johnny Briggs. And my dad would teach him some baseball stuff. We'd clear the land and the kids would come in from these, the ghetto neighborhood and we'd, he'd teach them baseball. So my dad had played baseball and was with the Giants a little bit. And, 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 and the kids just warmed. And I remember how when Sunday school came and kids had what they called rickets and they had all kinds of disease. And my mom would sometimes pull the infection off their head. She was a nurse and then put it and then put uh, ointment on it for them and then back up, bag up their, um, uh, what do you call it? Not Rick, it wasn't Rick. I can't remember what it was, but they'd bag up their clothing because if it had that, that stuff in it that they couldn't spread. But we, then we had Sunday school. This is the way it should be. And the way it should be in the church. One of the saddest things for us today in the Christian church, which Christ should bring us together, that on Sunday morning, one of the most segregated times in all of the history of the church is on Sunday mornings, when we should be together, one in Christ. And here Paul is speaking about this. He says there shouldn't be differences. And uh, one of the children that came through that was Johnny Briggs, who played with the Phillies. And after he retired, came back to Patterson, where we went to church and, and worked in the jail system. But what an impact my parents had because they were willing to believe this. You see, this is what should happen in the church at the supper table. And instead, what Paul is saying, you guys are making it a mess. And you're hurting people as you participate. Rather than you should love everyone the same and treat them all the same and love them and give them their needs and help them build their lives together. And Paul saw this coming together as unity, not division. And yet we see that even in the church today. One of the saddest things that we have to go through right now in our own church is to leave our denomination. And it's been tough and it's going to be tough. But you know what? It's what we need to do to stand for what's right in the world for Jesus Christ. And it's not to say we don't love people. We love them more than we ever did before. But we need to make a stand in our culture. And so Jesus, Paul here now speaks to us and says, don't let the supper degenerate into something that's hurtful or painful. But rather, use it for the glory of God and bring us together. And then Paul says... Do you remember what the supper's all about? This is so important, folks, for us. Because I know sometimes it's very easy to be flippant about church service or about the communion. This is serious business. Paul says here, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed,
he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a New Testament covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we see G- he sees Jesus. He's been revealed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. It was Passover, the night before Passover started. And they were celebrating Passover. And if you remember, Passover was when the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites because they had blood sprinkled on the doorpost so that their first child would not born. And what a symbol 2,000 years earlier that God gave us of his son coming to die and to cover over our hearts. But God did it that, that night. And they instituted the Passover supper to remind the Israelites of God's gracious love and forgiveness to them. And Jesus took that that night and they had the Passover feast. But he then said, this is my body, which is going to be shed for you. Do it in remembrance. You see, communion is a remembrance that we remember what Christ has done for us. That we don't deserve it. But by his mercy, we receive the gift of eternal salvation. And that by his mercy, we don't get the wrath that God wants to put on us. You see, because that... The Bible tells us that before we were saved, we were number one at enmity with God. We're enemies. We didn't even like him. And the Bible says we are enemies and at enmity, and that God was at enmity with us because he was angry about our sinfulness and our rejection of him. But when Christ dies on the cross, he removes that enmity. In fact, the Bible tells us that he propitiates, he covers us over so that God doesn't see our sinfulness and that he can forgive us. That his blood is then shed to wash away our sinfulness and make us pure. And that he redeems, it's an it's a economic term which means buys us back. To be in his own and that we are adopted as children. We are no longer enemies of God. But now he adopts us into his family. And we are brothers and, sister, we are brothers and sisters with Jesus. And that not only does he redeem us, but then he reconciles us. All the enmity and all the problems that we have with God and rejecting him are gone. This is what he does. And this is what we're to remember. As we go to the table and realize his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed to wash us clean, to cover over our sins and make us righteous before God. And that when we die, we are covered with his righteous robe. And we're welcomed into heaven 
as if we never sinned because of what Jesus did on the cross and what we remember here today. Now we know there are different viewpoints on what happens during the communion service. As you all know, some of you come out of different backgrounds than what we are here. But some of you grew up in the Catholic faith and you know that when communion is given and the priest consecrates the communion and the bell is rung, that it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that at that point then there's this mystical thing that takes place and they actually become the body and blood of Christ. That's what the Catholics believe. And they're so careful about not dropping a crumb or anything because it's such sacredness. Then we have Martin Luther, who was part of the Reformation. He saw it as what is called consubstantiation. That something happens, but not sure that it turns in the actual body and blood of Christ, but it's present with us and that something does take place. And it's very important and very mystical. Then you had Swingley from that era too, who came along and many um, Baptists and Anabaptists and Mennonites believe that what happens is that it's just a remembrance. We just remember what Christ has done and that's all that matters. And in our faith coming out of the Calvinistic background, we believe that Christ is truly present with us when we're taking the supper. And then he confirms to us through his Holy Spirit that this is the actual wonderful work that God has done for us and confirms in us with his presence there and and, and makes us feel and understand the joy that we have because of this very act in history saved our soul. And that we're affirmed in that. And at that point, when we all participate in breaking the bread and taking the cup, we are also to look at ourselves. You see, the Lord's Supper is a wonderful thing. For first, it remembers what Christ has done for us. Then, at that point, we're to look ahead and know the assurance that we have. In Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have in him. And as we're taking that communion. We should feel affirmed in our hearts. And secure that Christ has us in eternity. Waiting. Yesterday when I did that funeral of that little saint. I remember one of the things as a pastor. You know you, you get to talk to people on a level that's pretty. Most people never talk about. And I talked to Dorothy uh, about a month and a half, two months ago before she died. And I remember talking to her about death and how she talked about how Christ had died to save her. And she was looking forward. She said, I just wish he would hurry. She was tired, 97 years old. She was tired. But she was so looking forward to getting to heaven. She wasn't in any pain. She was just tired. And she had this hope inside of her that she was not worried about dying. It was going to be a friend to her, a door to open, to go into eternity. And 
And that's the beautiful thing. As a pastor, you can sit down and talk to people about these things. And she shared with me how much she loved her Lord. And what a beautiful thought that is. And you see, that's what takes place at communion. There's also this point of the future and looking forward to it. But then there's also this thing of looking inside and doing an inventory of what's going on in our lives. Asking ourselves the tough questions. You know, we have a communion, uh, we have a confession of sin every week. Scott reads for us here in second service. And it's helpful for us. But to be able to sit down and look inside of our souls and ask ourselves, what are the things that are displeasing to the Lord? What am I doing that I need to change? God, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to me what's going on in my heart. Is there someone I'm passing up or missing? Am I hurting somebody? What are my thoughts? Where are they coming from? And why do they come the way they do? Is there somewhere I need to redirect my thoughts, Lord? You see, because this is a time which we really can remember that we commune with him, that we have this hope, and that we don't have to be afraid to be honest about what's going on inside of us because we know the great exchange has taken place, that our sin, when you accepted Jesus Christ, our sin came on Jesus. That's why he hung on the cross in the darkness of that hour and screamed out, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken? Because all of our sin and the sins of the whole world were going on him at that point. And that the transfer of his righteousness goes to us so that when we die, he sees his righteous robe around us and not our sinful lives. And this is the beautiful exchange has taken place on the cross that day. And that's what we remember. And at that point, we need to ask ourselves and look inside of ourselves. And what's our attitude when we receive the Lord's Supper? And what's what Paul then says? Take a good look at what you are doing. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup to the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and to drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, and eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you got weak and sick and are a number sleep which or died. And if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, Paul here is saying this, therefore, in summary. He says, don't eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. What does he mean by unworthy? What's the unworthy way? And we need to examine our lives. See, the Corinthians neglected to examine themselves before they took the supper. 
And what they were doing is he was saying, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. That's why people are getting sick. That's why people are weak. That's why some of them are even dying. Because you're leaving that judgment on you. And if you notice what he says here, he says, if you judge in your own heart and mind before the Lord, it won't come back on you later. But you deal with it and you confess it to the Lord and he'll remove it from you. And that you will have peace of mind. And that your hearts will be made right. And that you realize that this is important work that we need to do. And there's two dangers that happen with some Christians. Number one, some people feel that they can't take communion because they're so unworthy. And what they are doing is removing themselves from the grace of Christ. I remember working with a prostitute. Several years we worked with her. And just towards the end of her life, just before she came and contracted AIDS, she finally gave her life to Christ. But I remember talking to her. And she would say, Pastor Dave, you do not know what I've done. You don't realize how bad I've been. You don't know who I've been with. You don't know even about the little old lady that I ripped off her purse to pay for my addiction. It still haunts me, she said. And God wouldn't be able to forgive me. <laughs> I said, Phyllis, honey, she, he wants to forgive you for it all. His grace is so greater than all our sin, honey. Just give him your heart and he will forgive it no matter how bad it was. And here we have the danger of her not accepting it because she didn't feel worthy. I said to her, Phyllis, none of us are worthy. I don't deserve to get forgiven. All the things that I've done, I don't deserve that. You see, her sin was despair. But then there's also the other side of the coin. That some people go to church and they press the right buttons and they do all the right things. And think that they are presumpting that God owes them forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Psalm 51 is what God wants from us and what it pleases him. Not burnt offerings, not tithing, not all that other stuff. But a broken heart. A contrite heart that realizes that only God can forgive our sins and that we trust him solely. The Lord is near, the Bible says, the brokenhearted. And he saves those who have crushed spirits because we know the Bible tells us in the Beatitudes, Jesus says it, blessed are those who mourn. And a lot of people think, oh, that's a great passage for a Hallmark Carter that goes to a people who are grieving. No, that's not what Jesus meant. 
He says, blessed are those who mourn over their sin that they've committed. And they're truly sad and contrite about it. And they will be forgiven because they give it to Jesus who washed it away. You see, it's so easy to become presumptive. Jesus talked about it, that the man who went to the temple on Luke 18 and says, oh, I've done all this and I'm so great and all that. And the other guy came to the temple and he says, I'm not worthy and beats his chest and Lord, I'm so sinner. And the Bible says, Jesus said to the Pharisees, which guy went away justified? We know. Not the publican who thought he had it all together, but the one who repented and knew he needed God's grace. You see, the man who didn't think he needed grace, his, his ladder was stuck on the wrong wall that wasn't going to get them to heaven. Whereas the man who was contrite in his spirit was going to receive it because of the grace. That there are times that we don't think another way that's unworthy is that we think it's juice and crackers. I remember a guy said that to one time to me and I took it so wrong. Because he was getting ready. He wanted to get home to watch the football game that afternoon. He said, yeah, we got juice and crackers this week and oh, it's going to be a longer service. Really? <laughs> that's what you think about the Lord's death? that he did for you on the cross. And Paul says, that's why you're weak. That's why you're sick. That's why some people die because of the abuse. You see, in an unworthy manner, it means that sometimes we ignore God and just kind of flippantly go through it when we fail to understand the true meaning of the supper. And thinking that maybe if we eat the Lord's Supper, it'll save us. It's not going to save us. We might as well have Cheerios. They're not going to save you either. It's what he did. What you're affirming. What you're honoring at the Lord's Supper. When we refuse to repent or confess our sins... It just shows a lack of respect toward our God and his perfect sacrifice. And that we're guilty of treating Christ's unique life and death as something as common and insignificant, which it is not. That's why it says about trampling on the blood of Christ. And the consequences are there. It's a pretty serious matter in Paul's eyes. And he lays it out very plainly. And that the Lord chastens those he loves. He may chasten us with that kind of attitude. And so we want to take the Lord's Supper. And not take it on an unworthy way. But a way that honors him that affirms our faith, that looks forward, and that we could lay ourselves purely out before him and confess to him who we really are. That's the way.
That's what Paul says to these Corinthians. And that we need to correct it when our attitude or our thinking is wrong. That's why he says here, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that they will not come together for judgment, and the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. He wants them to take care of their brothers and sisters at the community table. And that we remember that this also, when we get together and we have a service and we're having communion like we will next week, that we are eating and drinking the cup and we're proclaiming to each other and to the church that this is the backbone of our faith. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood, washing us clean, and then resurrecting and give us the eternal life. That's what it is. You know, when I was a child, I didn't know how important it was to have the right attitude. But I remember getting a lesson one day on the way to church in the family car. 1954 Ford, two-door. Mom and dad in the front bench seats. Three kids fighting in the back. <laughs> now I knew you thought that I wouldn't fight with my brother and sister, of course. But, And I can remember we were very quiet that Sunday as we're driving. Because mom and dad are having a blowout fight. Oh, baby. We were singing things from my mother and father that we had never seen. And it was heated. And my dad was an elder in the church. And we were having communion Sunday because communion Sunday only was four times a year. And he was supposed to, as a head elder, lead. And they were into it. I can't even remember what it was about. Probably finances because we didn't have any. And they were arguing, and when they got to church, you know how it is, oh, praise you, Jesus. Everybody was all sweet, but they were not. And my dad knew it. And he immediately got out of the car, I'll never forget this, and goes in and finds the pastor and says, I can't take communion this Sunday. I'm not in a good spot. And usually, you know, we had these elders that when the pastor came in, and my brother's church still does it, they sit in the front row. Deacons on the one side and elders on the other. And my dad was not there. And I'm with my mother, about four seat down, pew. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, my dad sitting in the back pew. And when communion came, he usually was up there serving it. And he wasn't. And then when it came around, I noticed my mother passed the tray. Didn't take anything. And I watched my father when the tray came and he passed it and didn't take anything. Because they knew they were in the wrong space to honor the Lord. And I remember 
getting in the car after church with my brother and sister, and we're like, whoa, what's going on here? And then about five minutes into the ride, it started. And all of a sudden, they were asking each other for forgiveness and apologizing for the way they acted and how wrong they were. Letting that come in between them. And then at the end of it, I'll never forget, we're just getting close to the driveway and he did it. He put his arm up like this and she came across the bench seat and he hugged her and kissed her. And us kids are going, oh, you know how that is. We're all embarrassed. But they had forgiven each other. And that's what happens at the table. When it truly means so much to us that we're willing to forgive each other and receive the forgiveness from God that we so desperately need. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to thank you for this day and for the blessing, Lord, it is to us to receive the gift of taking communion together and that we know that we can be forgiven because you have done that already. And that we can forgive each other and love each other in a deeper way than we could ever before. I thank you, Lord, for giving us this instruction through Paul today. Help us, Lord, to really utilize and appreciate this love that you show us in a very visible way when we come together and receive communion. And it's through Jesus Christ I pray this. Amen. Please rise for the benediction, and then we can sing our closing song. And now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's ever love for you, and the power of the Holy Spirit infect our lives and the people around us. Amen. My peace I give unto you. Cannot give. It's a peace that the world cannot understand. Peace to know, peace to live. My peace I give unto you.